Welcome everyone to the Grainmaker Wrestling Podcast, a Prairie Proud Wrestling Podcast covering everything from Winnipeg to Worldwide. My name is Blair Pacheco. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're having a great day, evening, weekend, whenever it is you might be sitting down and listening to this. Now, I have talked about getting back into watching independent wrestling. I know the exact show it was at. I know the wrestlers on the card because something about it just drew me into the aura of it, all about it. I just loved being being there, being a part of it. And my guest this week was actually on that show. And since then, it was something that like I, w- I always had an interest in their career, what they were able to do. And we have finally had a time to sit down to chat. Joining me on the podcast today, Chad Tatum. Chad, how's it going? Very good. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> um, so the first show I ever saw you at was, it was a PCW show. Yeah. And it was, I think, the 14th anniversary spectacular, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. (laughs) And I'll always remember it for, it was one of the stupidest reasons why, because there was, uh, I think it was Jay Walker defended his title against Xiao Ming. And then in a trios match later on, we got General Ping in your match. And (laughs) something about that always stood out. So Um, let's talk a little bit about getting into wrestling because you started at a time where wrestling was arguably at one of its hottest periods of all time and you kind of got into it around then so what all brought you into getting involved with wrestling well i uh i graduated high school late in 1997 so around that time exactly what you said uh wrestling was big and booming the Attitude Era was in full swing, WWF still at the time versus WCW, and I mean, ECW was making its charge. So growing up, when I was a little kid, I watched the same amount of wrestling as normal person, but I thought what I saw on the screen was absolutely true. I got terrified and traumatized when The Undertaker locked the Ultimate Warrior in that casket or when... Ricky Dragon Steve got his throat smashed by Macho Man coming off the top with the bell. So as a little kid, it kind of like gave me the heebie-jeebies and gave me creeps enough so that my folks said, maybe don't watch wrestling for a while. Mm. So back in high school, I had a buddy that just loved it. And I we would spend Monday nights kind of just hanging out. We had our girlfriends at the time who put up with us watching wrestling and then trying moves on each other, just like the idiot teenagers we were. Um, it was, it was, my buddy's name was Bryce. He was the first of us to get a computer because the internet was still just kind of brand new in the late nineties. Yep. And just as you do Googling before it was a Google, it was Alta Vista or so whatever. He, <laughs> he, uh, he said one day, I was looking up where wrestling schools would be, and the cheapest and closest one I can find is in Mississippi, and it's going to cost us $6,000 for one week's of training, and you got to like trans yourself down there and get hotels and all that kind of stuff. And I was immediately out. Like I liked it, but not that much. Yeah. It was kind of his dream to give it a whirl while he was still young and active. And so a month or two went by, and late in 99, when – 
at the height of our watching wrestling almost every night. Cause I don't know if you remember then, but Monday night, Tuesday night went like almost every night of the week, you could watch some kind of programming. Yeah. And, uh, he was watching more than I was, but he just, we got to try this. We got to try this. And now I, I saw a poster for a show for the Canadian wrestling federation, CWF, Ernie Todd owned that promotion in Winnipeg was going to do a show on Brandon. And we figured let's go check it out. And it was at our college at ACC here in town in the gym. And it wasn't a big show by any means, it, but it had kind of everything you'd think an independent show would have the, Big, gassed up, tattooed, long-haired, greasy biker guys that were a little bit slow and plodding with that part. Um, it had a couple of younger guys that could do some moves that we thought were pretty cool. And on that show was a guy that we were soon to start hanging around with. It was a guy named Mentolo. Mm -hmm. And he uh, was just in the business for about a year or two. And so he wasn't that far off of our age. And... Like, if that guy can do it, well, then maybe we should look into it. We had a great time. Um, started emailing Ernie Todd about, like, do you have a wrestling school? And he said, yeah, if you get you and a couple of your buddies to come on into Winnipeg, maybe I'll even give you a group rate or something. And so we, this weird moment in time, Bryce and I looked at each other and he's like, do you want to be a wrestler? <laughs> I was like, okay, dude, let's give it a whirl. I <laughs> thought it was just going to be three months in the summer and it was going to be just shits and giggles and all that kind of stuff. And here we are 23 years later, still talking about it. So yeah, our first foray was traveling into Winnipeg every single Saturday and Sunday. And I mean, he had the stereotypical first piece of crap car that we all have when we're younger and mm -hmm. I didn't even have one yet, so I was throwing him gas money, and we'd get up early in the morning, drive in. Ernie Todd owned a trucking company, and in one of those um, garages where he worked on his trucks, he'd set up an old rusty ring, and he had a group of, yeah, maybe a dozen either guys that are just broken into the business or were just brand, brand new trainees, and um, I don't know if you know or talked to or met or seen a guy named Easy Rider. Mm-hmm. He was our first trainer and he taught us the basics. You learn defense first. So in early 2000, we got the crap kicked out of us every single Saturday, drove home, came back in Sunday, did it again for six or seven hours, tried to time it. So we were driving out. Um, Joe Aiello at the time had a wrestling show on the radio. Yeah. NHB. Yes. Yeah. And it came on whatever at six to seven or seven to eight or something like that. And we tried to time it that we could listen to his show because his radio would kick out around Portage the Prairie and we couldn't hear it anymore. And, mm -hmm. um, that was our, that was our lives. We go to work at our crappy job. Like we all do and make a little bit of money, go to university. And then, but on the weekend we were pro wrestlers, man. And it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. So April, 2000, I think was the first, time we both stepped into a ring and kind of fell in love with the business the inside part of it anyway so yeah the first time you show up for training i mean what are the thoughts that are running through your head because i mean i think from what i've heard and what i've learned is things have changed immensely when it comes to training you know like the yeah. 
the physical aspect, I mean, the opportunities, all of that. But when you guys showed up there for the first time, what were your thoughts? At first, we wondered if we were about to be swindled. And, like, we we had never really been to that. Like, um, we don't know this guy, really, mm-hmm. other than meeting him once or twice and then some emails. And, we, and he was full-on living his wrestling gimmick, too. Like, he was the promoter, but he was doing the big kahuna gimmick and inserting himself into storylines. And we wondered if like, is this guy for real? But as soon as we found our way around and he met us there, opened it up and actually easy rider was running about an hour late. And so instead of just sitting around twiddling our thumbs, Ernie started legit was our first trainer, I guess. And he showed us (laughs) how to run the ropes and how to take a bump and that kind of stuff. And then easy got there and legit kicked him out. He said, okay, uh, forget everything Ernie just taught you. Let's <laughs> redo this again. Like they were buddies and everything, but it was, yeah, he had not been trained, I think, as a proper wrestler. And Easy took it serious. Mm-hmm. And we, that, w- that was nice. It was just some money grab where he wasn't even like taking us serious either. Mm-hmm. That would have sucked if it was just like a wasted two hours out of his life. But it wasn't. He, there was, yeah, about, about 10 of us there that first Saturday by the end of it uh, by the next day even uh, there was only six of us and again two of them were guys that were already working for CWF but I think it was just an unwritten rule that until you're a year or two into the business you're at training sessions and you're learning all different aspects about it like it it just was right out of a movie or a tv show Mm -hmm. where you'd walk in and yeah there's engine parts off to the side the ring is pressed against the back and uh like if you on three sides of the ring you could reach out and touch the walls it was that close that crammed in there and but i wouldn't have had it any other way it was crappy and greasy and dirty and it was dusty and gross but it was it was awesome you mentioned like the next day there only being like six of you left did more people drop off as it continued or did that six kind of stay through um it was a pretty consistent there was two or three guys again that i think had started training a week or two before us that were still coming back for more Uh, but bryce and i weren't joined by another couple of trainees for all three or four months and um they were guys that were living in Winnipeg. So they were training during the week. We could only come in on the weekends. Uh, but when we met them, I don't want to say it was life changing, but um, we became really fast friends. And um, you may have known Mike angels. Mm-hmm. Yep. And a good buddy of his, who's actually still wrestling name uh, today. Was, his name was Bruce, but he goes by Dean Richter. Yeah. is still wrestling. Um and another buddy of theirs who had no aspirations to be a wrestler, but kind of wanted to be just involved. A guy named Scott who just, um, we tried to make him into a referee and even he wouldn't, he was too afraid of it, I guess. And, um, we'd end up staying at just the crappiest. They're the airport mortar in. We gave them $25 every Saturday and Sunday for, just for a terrible night's sleep. And eventually they let us, crash at their place at Mike's and Scott's and Bruce's. And we, uh, one of them had a video camera, one of those big old school ones that you'd have to put over your shoulder and a tripod. We set it up and we'd film those things six or seven hours of training 
and then go back to their place and watch six or seven hours of training and just laugh and talk about stuff and, oh, let's try this tomorrow or let's do this next time. And um, I know I'm rambling on here, but it's just, I'm all excited now talking about the beginnings here. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's funny. You mentioned something like that and I almost feel like you don't get that nowadays when it comes to, you know, like the, the group kind of like coming together like that. And you like, you guys would film, you know, six hours of training, go back and rewatch it. And then you're like, Hey, no, let's try this. Let's try this. Like that really builds a, a really strong bond when you, I don't think it's always the same nowadays. No, for sure. And invariably, I think some of myself and Bryce end up going under the moniker of raw skills. Mm-hmm. So he and I formed a tag team, just that seemed to be natural. And at the start, Mike and Dean Richter were a tag team. And some of our best matches in those early days were against each other because, of course, we were spending so much time in the ring. Um, we had Easy Rider for the first two hours of a six-hour day. He would have to go. Um, some of the guys in the training class would take off, but we had nowhere to be, and we loved being there. So... In those early days, another guy named Gene Swan, Tomahawk Gene Swan, Mm -hmm. would come down. And if Easy Rider was old school and you run the ropes properly, he talked to you about psychology and proper headlocks and positioning and all that. Gene would come in and let us try a little bit more risque moves because, I mean, back in the day, Bryce and I were totally modeling ourselves kind of after either the Hardy Boys or Edge and Christian or Rob Van Dam and Jerry Lynn, that kind of high flying style. Cause I mean, yeah. we were 150 pounds, skinny little white dudes that had no business looking like we could be in wrestling, but um, we were able to understand and adopt almost a, not quite a Lucha Libre style, but we, we practiced our chain wrestling ton we watched a ton of tapes studied some stuff from japan and it literally was trading tapes with different guys once you Mm -hmm. worked your way into the business to find stuff that you wanted to watch that was interesting and what you wanted to do as a performer yourself it's i've been able to talk to a few people and when the topic of tape trading comes up because like that was something that like i lived through i remembered uh, a buddy of mine buying the king of the death match tournament and getting (laughs) that on vhs and we're watching it and like going to pictures frames and more and buying rf video cassettes you know like you don't have that nowadays it's all so easily accessible but like back in the late 90s early 2000s that was how you learned about other styles other promotions and it was really a gateway to so much more well and you kind of had to be invited into the club so to speak like there were guys who had large collections who took it seriously i mentioned mentolo earlier another guy that helped uh, get us in the early days um trained and especially the more high-flying kind of stuff showtime robbie royce mm-hmm. And his partner at the time, the bomb, Darren Dalton, they were team impact back in that day. Again, they would come down and spend their weekend time. They didn't have to, but they saw something in the group, four or five of us that were coming out on a consistent basis. And um, for a while, it was like, come here, kid, I want to try this move on you type of thing. And (laughs) we'd get all drived and slammed or lay down for some top rope move. But eventually, I mean, that's all important too. You got to learn defense, the art of selling the psychology behind when and why and how to do or not do certain moves or sequences. Um, 
I don't think, as you mentioned earlier, that that's probably the way into the business nowadays. Mm-hmm. I, I'd say five or six years into our um, foray into professional wrestling, all these little camps were popping up around Winnipeg where there was four, maybe five little promotions. There were two main ones, but there were five in total and anybody could just sign up to be a wrestler. You're getting kids just out of high school that had barely turned 18 that were only legal. And they were just stealing money from these kids on a two day training session on the weekend. And it was, we just shook our heads at it. Um, Jumping ahead, but the owner an operator of premier championship wrestling, Andrew Shawcross, um, had a guy working for him for a long time named Danny Duggan, mm-hmm. who is now running a pretty successful promotion himself too. They did it the right way and they got longtime veteran trainers to be there or longtime veteran wrestlers to be their head trainers. Anytime they ran another session and it was done properly. Mentolo did a wonderful job of training a lot of guys in this business. You probably know and watched Antonio Scorpio Jr. Mm-hmm. or Nate Hardy. He's had a lot of different names over the years, but those were two of his most successful um, trainees. There's been a lot more. Robbie Royce always did a wonderful job. Um, I don't know if you've ever spoken to or seen or watched a guy named Vance Nevada. Yep. Burn May. He was a wonderful guy to learn from. He's still... He's still going strong. He's still out West going. Yeah. I see him online all the time and dude's got to be in there probably for 30, 35 years now. And mm-hmm. big shout out to him for doing lots in this business. So, yeah. You had kind of mentioned like when you first started training, you know, like usually it'd be about a year before you even had a match that you're, you know, taking part in the training. Was that the same case for yourself? It was supposed to be. But as invariably things go sideways, um, we train about six months into it. It was had to be the summer because we were out doing security. The two smallest guys in the promotion <laughs> working security at some fairgrounds, I think in Killarney, Manitoba. And they, uh, in fact, Bryce and I joke about it now because they didn't believe us when we told them that we were with the wrestling show. Okay, you guys. All right. Sure. <laughs> For real. So we had to pay to get in, <laughs> help set up the ring, put on a little skinny security shirt. And two of the wrestlers that were driving from Winnipeg got lost, couldn't find it. They weren't going to make it on time. And so Robbie Royce was um, at that time booking for CWF. And he kind of just looked around the room and he pointed to, Bryce, who just happened to walk in the door first of a literal barn horse stables is where we were getting changed. And he goes, uh, you're running the music and the merch table and I might get you to referee. And he pointed to me and, and you're going to work the first match against me under a hood. I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) So you, you would think you'd be mentally prepared thinking about your first match and all that. And we knew it was coming probably in Winnipeg, but we weren't quite ready. And it just, you're thrown into it. I had, I had to borrow a pair of running shoes. Gene Swan, who was a much larger man than I pulled out these zebra tights from his bag. And it was a big rib. Hey, where are these kid? And I <laughs> took off my shirt and was not ready, but kudos to Royce for guiding me through yeah, he put on a mask and wrestled as El Diablo Jesus or something like that. Yeah. They had a faction in the CWF at the time where um, 
I think Gene's nickname was Gene Thunder. Um, there was a, another kid going by lightning or something. So there was a weather thing. So they looked at me and um, you're going to be the hurricane. Okay. <laughs> and just, so just running with it. Eh? Yeah, whatever. Just, okay. And Bryce ribbed me by playing Rocky like a hurricane by the scorpions or something. So it all fit together. And we had a seven minute little throwaway thing that I've half the crowd's, drinking their beer the other half is eating their cotton candy and they're just watching an outdoor wrestling show this I mean, masked guy beat up on a skinny little white guy and whatever it was fun though at least i mean it's one of those things where you, you know you show up like right place right time hey you're going to be wrestling your first match and like you're not having to overthink things like knowing that like hey if they would have said hey your match is going to be this day and then that's what yeah. you're building up to like you were just thrown into it and be like here take the ball and run with that sort of thing. Well, unfortunately, because Royce had been coming down so often and working with us, he knew, or he had a sense anyways, of what I could do and what I probably shouldn't be doing at that point. And yeah, he just called the whole thing. He led me around. Um, even my offense, he would call it. And, and I was able to, like, I took a beating as I should have <laughs> that. And he, it was a quick match. And But I look back and I wish it on wish I had it on camera, but yeah, it's all good. So. so many of those like matches, like that's something that whenever footage pops up, like, you know, there'll be accounts on Twitter that'll show like some random 2000s indie match. And you're just like, you, you think like there has been so much of this that is just lost forever that like, you kind of want to be able to go back, rewatch and just experience it again. Like we're not as fortunate. Uh, we're more fortunate now than we were back then. For sure. Our biggest goal on any given night of a show was scrambling around trying to find somebody that would bring their camcorder and then find somebody else to tape the match for us. Mm -hmm. Invariably, somebody that was uh, working later on in the show would go hide up in the crowd uh, with a camcorder and tape whoever's working in the first match. And then the opening match guys would grab the camera. And so we were pretty fortunate because we took an act of um, role and making sure that our matches got taped once we were further into the business something like this right at the start we had no idea when and where we were going to be called upon to to do what and when so we didn't have access to all that footage i just have my memories but mm -hmm. you're right it's streaming is wonderful the internet's a wonderful place now so people breaking into the business there's probably so many fan cams versions of stuff people have taken and posted on social media that you could go back and watch a clip yourself if you never got it taped. But I'm fortunate that I actively went after and found people to tape matches for me. So I could turn those into VCR tapes and then mm -hmm. DVDs. And now I'm getting them converted to digital stuff. So I have probably over 300 of my matches, fortunately, on tapes. Oh, I mean, like there were some of them, like when I was going back and, you know, going through your matches, kind of doing research, mm -hmm. like you're looking at some of those matches you were a part of and like, in when it comes to like Manitoba wrestling history, I mean, some of the names you've mentioned, like Showtime Robbie Royce, yeah. I mean, you know, Gene Swan, all these people, like they were had such a fixture, uh, such a history being a part of Manitoba wrestling that like, you want to be able to see that continue to this day. Well, it was neat. They for sure didn't pass the baton over to us in any sense of the word, but um, there were guys to be feared and respected 
uh, Brian Jewell was a huge name for us when we first came in. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was like a rite of passage to get chopped by him when you were first coming in. <laughs> and uh, he he was good to us in that, like, he didn't hold back from anybody. He was stiff in the ring. And it was, it was if you made it through a match with him or another guy that maybe you saw around Winnipeg was a guy named Spider. Mm-hmm. He was hardcore guy for a couple of different promotions around here. And he's a scary monster in the ring, but just another nice dude in the back. Yeah. And uh, it was neat to see the different personas and get to be part of just a small chunk of Winnipeg wrestling history. So you were a part of CWF for, for a while and then made the move over to top rope. Yeah. What was it that kind of led to you making that move? Cause you and raw skills both went, correct? Yep. There was actually a, a five person swap all at once. Um, when we got in to the business and started with CWF, the other main promotion that had just started. It had been River City Wrestling for a long time. And then Bobby J, who was another local wrestler, longtime promoter, um, took most of that roster and turned it into Top Rope Championship Wrestling, TRCW. And as I said earlier, the internet was kind of new and message boards were popping up and everybody was a keyboard warrior. You didn't have to use your real name. And like the politics behind the scenes was just, it was like high school drama. But I mean, we were invested in, we were at war versus TRCW. But if you kind of take a step back from that and realize that they're not all assholes, we're not all assholes. There's a couple in every group, of course, but we had been working pretty steadily for Ernie and CWF and having some pretty decent matches, I think, for the company and popping big numbers and finally starting to make money. That was Ernie's rule. Um, and we didn't question it. You don't get paid for your first year of wrestling. You're on the no. ring crew. You could be in the main event. Mm-hmm. You turn around, you got five minutes to get changed, go shake some hands of fans and try to sell some merch if you had any. But then you're tearing down the ring. <laughs> like, I remember one show at the Rendezvous where assisted suicide, that was Ross Skills and I, we had just won a, tag, or a TLC match and won the tag titles and crowd was going nuts and everything. And that was the end of the night. Yeah, we dropped our belts, quickly changed into our sweatpants and went back out after just being the champs and were tearing down the ring and didn't question it. It is what it is. And um, I think that's a part of a rite of passage to go through as well, too. Um, That year and a half was wonderful, but it sort of ran its course. Mm -hmm. We had kind of worked against the guys that we could over and over again. And we had no one else to work against in CWF. And over in TRCW, there were guys that are our age doing the kind of wrestling that we liked. And all we wanted to do was just have a chance to work against them. Mm -hmm. But the two promoters weren't having any crossovers at all. It wasn't going to happen. And so I remember our family is fortunate enough to have a cabin here in Manitoba. And so I was up at the lake with my family and I got a call from Bryce. He was like, Hey, we were crew TRCW now. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, myself, so Ross Gills, Robbie Royce, Darren Dalton and Mike Angels um, tried to do the honorable thing and go to talk to Ernie in person. 
and um, Ernie was having a yard sale at the time. And there's an infamous story, depending on who you hear it from. I wasn't there, so I don't know for sure, but I heard there were tears because Team Impact and Assisted Suicide were some of Ernie's top draws. Not the, all of them, but it was a big handful to leave all at once. Mm-hmm. And Bobby J, I think, was more than happy to put us into his promotion. And we, uh, WCW and ECL, they had just finished doing their invasion angles. And so that was a hot thing. And so they wanted to play the invasion angle, even though it was just five of us. But we got to work against guys finally that we weren't going to have an opportunity to. And years later, I talked to Ernie when you run into him and he doesn't hold any ill will. And we never meant to hurt him in any ways. It was just our time in CWF is kind of coming to an end and it felt natural to go somewhere that had wrestlers that we wanted to see how we would do against. So, yeah. You know, I think I went to, cause I remember way back then, like two thousands ish. Cause I remember you had mentioned Joe Aiello's radio show and and they would promote shows as well under no holds, no holds ball wrestling. Yep. And, I remember going to a couple of those, but then also like there was a show at uh, La Rendezvous. I remember that yep. Sabu no showed on. And yes. That, yeah. <laughs> that kind of turned me off from going to wrestling because it's like, you're going to a show expecting it. And it's like, Oh, he's not there. So I remember going to one top rope championship wrestling show yep. and it was at doubles fun club. Yeah. And the one thing I remember, it was like the second match in and somebody had hurt their neck. I, I don't remember mm how who it was or what yep. happened but like the the show had to like end right there you know oh, it was called and i remember going on the message boards the next day you're trying to find info about this because it was like that was unheard of so like to yeah. hear the message board and that like that's a blast from the past yeah it it turned ugly pretty quickly <laughs> <laughs> moon dog message board i think it was called the one that we were always on and we kind of had to come to terms with like I'm spending way too much time online. I got other better things to do than argue with a fake person on the internet. <laughs> probably just another dude that probably is a worker as well. Cause some fans were going to that, but I bet you the majority of it was just workers trying to work each other online. So, mm-hmm. You, you stayed with top rope for about a year, correct? Yeah. About a year and a half. It's, we had a pretty good run there too. And it would have, kept going but they're uh one of the main ring announcers um there seemed to be dueling ring announcers wayne stanton was a wonderful guy as a as a ring announcer as far as i knew him and mike davidson also did a wonderful job now he worked in brandon here i watched him on the our television show he ran some the sports section and so he always had a good speaking voice and he and I are friendly and everything, that kind of stuff too. But he was a bit of a weasel and liked to stir the pot wherever he went. And <laughs> he had his 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 little clique of buddies that were wrestlers too. And they weren't happy with the direction that Bobby J was kind of running things and thought maybe they could do a better a better job. So they upped and started a new promotion. Mm-hmm. This happens a lot in Winnipeg. When a company gets too swollen full of guys and a certain faction of them aren't getting promoted as much as they think or running the storylines storylines that they think they probably should be. It's been a pattern in Winnipeg that a chunk breaks off and a new promotion starts. So mm-hmm. 
it's happened at least four or five times that I can think of. And so Bobby kind of was undercut by probably four or five wrestlers that didn't like his direction and thought, hey, we'll do it ourselves and found a guy that was willing to back them financially. And I think over the Christmas break between 2001 to two or something, there was a secret meeting held with 20 or so wrestlers that were going to get invited to this new premier championship wrestling promotion that was going to start. And they just wanted to know if we wanted to be part of it. Bryce and I were fortunate enough to be highly thought up enough to get the invite. And out of everybody in the room, there was only one guy that just kind of didn't think it was going to fit for him. Zach Mercury decided to walk away and um, he eventually came over to the dark side, if you will, anyways. <laughs> but it, but so it was big news in the wrestling community at that time. But it was, everybody felt bad for Bobby J. But what it did do, guys that didn't get the invite because they weren't part of the friends group or the click or whatever, they actually rose up in TRCW and carried mm -hmm. the promotion. Uh, my buddy, actually the guy that I was living with in Winnipeg, Mike Angels, he had an apartment with a spare bedroom and convinced me to move to Winnipeg because we were working three or four nights and that was just too much traveling for me. And so I dropped out of university and enrolled uh, at U of M, but it was too late. So I had to wait till the second semester. So I had all this free time and yeah, sure. Why not move to Winnipeg? And he didn't get the call to go to PCW, unfortunately, at the start. And he just got more of a spotlight in TRCW. Vance Nevada and him put on a series of wonderful matches and they carried it for another at least six months until Bobby J decided to finally just call it quits at that point anyways. And so, yeah, I'm not painting a lovely picture for myself. I'm a ship jumper. I went from <laughs> C to F to here to this to that. But it was just an opportunity to work against other guys that we hadn't for the last year and a half. And we thought it would be fun. So. Well, one of the things you kind of mentioned before was like back then you, it's not as I'll, I'll say forgiving as it is now with promotions where like guys will be able to work through multiple promotions. Now yep. back then you didn't have that. It was like, this is where you're working. You're not working over there. There's no interaction. It was a very much a team mentality with that. It was well, and almost to a fault. I've, love all the guys that I got to work for. Ernie Todd was a weird guy, but he was, he was a stand-up guy. Bobby J, same thing, was a good guy. Um, Andrew Shawcross is an awesome guy. I still hang out with him now and again, who owns and runs PCW. But they were very particular, especially about their wrestlers that were popular at the time. They didn't want you to be a champ for their promotion then go over to another promotion and get booked wrong and beat in five minutes and made to look a fool. So while we were allowed to travel out of province or into the States to work for other companies in town, it was kind of a no, no. Mm -hmm. So there was a period of time where Mike would go to work at TRCW and I would go to a different building to go work for PCW. And it was almost wasted because he and I and our guys that we were in tag teams with eventually put, got to work together and put on some pretty good matches for what, we considered and our prime <clears throat> but we just missed out on time together until trcw kind of faded away and 
a few guys from there, including Mike, came to PCW and made it a better place too. But even PCW got swollen 2003 and four, five, that kind of time frame. It was wonderful. You're running every Thursday night at either it was the stratosphere or palladium first one of those two yeah it started off as the palladium then went to the stratosphere and then the lid because then that the was, lid yeah, yeah. it was <laughs> the place to be for a while so mm -hmm. i i remember seeing the flyers for that all the time like you yeah. you'd go to the lid you'd see a poster up you eventually i think coyotes even had wrestling yep. there too yeah. like south winnipeg was the hotbed for independent wrestling apparently <laughs> And well, and just further up, Pem and I think Dylan's for a yeah. while was home when they when the lid finally closed its doors, and it was awesome for us. But because we happen to live in the area, but I that was the biggest complaint I heard from fans was it's so far away. <laughs> I guess I'm sorry, but hey, yeah. I I lived I live like used to live five minutes from the university, so oh, like, yeah. that was I only went to the South End bars growing yeah. up. <laughs> um well i mean you go to pcw shortly yeah. thereafter i mean they had i think it was commencement of cool yeah for that time that was a massive venue because that was a, at investors group at the university right yeah it was in the gym there and they um had filled up the entire one side because the hard camera was on the other and um we magically caught eddie guerrero in between working through his life battle. So he was out of the WWF at the time, but he was on his way back. We were the last independent show that he did before he went back to the big, big league. So he headlined that against a couple of our local guys and who had a wonderful match. Uh, they brought in Honky Tonk Man and Brutus the Barber Beefcake. Um, but probably the best match on the show was uh, Mentolo versus Kenny Omega. <laughs> um not to downgrade the TLC match for $20,000 that assisted suicide had with two <laughs> other guys, perfect balance, big O and Moses Luke. But I think Kenny and mental finally got to work against each other in front of 1500 plus fans. I think, I don't know for sure, but I would, we're going to say that was a record at the time for mm -hmm. an independent show uh, in recent memory anyways. And um, that was the match that I think, elevated both of those guys in the public's eyes mm -hmm. um we had all met kenny he's four or five years younger than both um ross gills mentalo mike angels myself we all were kind of a we were our own little group that hung out together we'd go to eat before our shows at the lid or whatever and um so we call him the kid it's funny that we call kenny omega the kid we still call him that ever we talk to him or email him or something it's just kind of a side joke but it's cliche to say but you could see something special in that guy right from the get-go i don't know if you ever got to see him in his early years but he uh hit the gym hard and came back from his little stint uh down south with his what, three or four months he worked out with the wwf in their training came back and was just ready to quit the business and had a match against Ross Gills and um, Mentolo and kind of found his love for the building or for the business again. And mm -hmm. I would imagine most people know who we're talking about when we mentioned Kenny Omega's name. So, 
Well, I, I mean, I, I put it in my notes to bring up later on, but like yeah. you and Kenny and Mike, like you guys really had like a, almost like a really special friendship there because yeah. anytime uh, Kenny would come back and work PCW shows like tour later on in his career, yeah. you, you guys would usually be a part of those matches. Yeah, I uh, take it as a little nod of accomplishment that he always considered us to be safe workers. And I mean, we're entertaining in our own rights. We could do some cool moves and all that kind of stuff. But that's a, it was always a proud thing to tell my buddies that yeah, Kenny would request to work certain guys or not when he came back to work for PCW. And thankfully my name or Mike's name was usually on that list, like you said, and we had some real, we had some good matches. It was mostly peppered with comedy because that's him and Chris Stevens working as the experience, their tag. They did some goofy stuff and we just fed right into that. And it was more about laughs with some pretty high flying, cool stuff peppered in there. But yeah, I have it in my notes to talk about a few matches against those guys later on too. So yeah. When I was, cause when I'm making my notes and stuff, like I'll yeah. always, you know, go to, you know, cage match, I'll Google the person, everything like that. And I like, I have a YouTube channel, but like, I would record PCW matches when I'd go and, you know, just put them up there because like, why not? You know, like yep. there's not tons of matches for these guys. So I'll put them up. And one of the things I recorded, I, I forgot about it was you and Mike's walkout for one of the matches with Kenny and Chris. And yeah. I completely forgot about it. The crowd was going nuts for you guys. Well, we had formed a tag team probably mid 2005 or six, something like that. Um, and called ourselves Tag Sciences Faculty because we were both um, taking our university's degree and getting into education to become teachers and had science background. And it was just, I, it was, he thought it was a cold name and I went with it. So then he picked some pretty good entrance music. Um, and he's always done this goofy bounce thing. And we'd gone away from being a tag team. And when we came back together, the fans kind of remembered it and enjoyed it. And we were fortunate to put on some good matches with each other. And then, of course, I had to retire him. Poor Mike Angels had to put him on his back and send him out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, we, we mentioned commencement of cool. Yeah. investors group in an incredible venue for something like that especially at that time you're not getting you know you they were still doing i think like bar shows community yeah. shows at that so to run a venue like that was a huge deal and then shortly after was at shaw park for boiling point correct yeah i think march was the big commencement and then it was either june or july or august i think later on in the year they ran at can west global park and had uh, they brought in legion of doom they, that was quite a spectacle those guys were awesome uh, they brought in Buff Bagwell. They had Bret Hart lined up, actually. But uh, two or three weeks before he was due to come out here, he got in a big biking, like a bicycle accident. He flipped over his BMX mm -hmm. and had a big concussion and everything, and he couldn't even come to do fan signing. So that's too bad. We kind of wanted to meet that guy. But it was our first kind of outdoor show. I mean, we had done parking lot shows at yeah. random bars and outside of community fairs and stuff like that. But... It, it was it, while it was cool to wrestle there it was almost too big of a venue i think um where it it it, it wasn't there was more than 1200 people but it looked kind of empty because it was just such a huge venue and it's hard to kind of interact with the fans mm -hmm. and that's a lot of especially independent wrestling is interacting with fans and it just 
I fondly remember the commencement of cool because they were right there all around lots yeah. of people. Not that I didn't enjoy my match against Ross skills and that whole show at the global Ken West global park. But I think if you talked to anybody on that show, it was kind of, it wasn't as much excitement and it was, it had a different feel to it, I think, but kudos to Andrew Shawcross and Mike Davidson for pulling it off. They dipped into their own personal funds to help get that show going. Cause they're, major financial guy had backed out mm-hmm. right at the last minute. And so they floated that whole show and it almost broke them, but they, Andrew is still the business. So it was neat to be part of. Yeah. I mean, we mentioned, you know, the vendors that PCW ran at the lid was like their home base for quite a while. Yeah. What do you remember most about those shows? Well, I think, it a show like that kind of really did have everything for an independent show that you'd want. There was comedy wrestling, there was risque kind of flamboyant back when it was kind of cool to have flamboyant characters. They they had some of that. They had some. We had a nickname given to us by some of the bigger, more muscular guys. They called us the vanilla mid, the vanilla midgets. <laughs> But we thought we were pretty good at proficient at chain wrestling and doing the flippy stuff and that kind of stuff. So that hit some some of the crowd enjoyed that. But at the time, Playboy Will Damon and um, Shane Madison and Chris Paris and those guys were our rocks in Austin. And I mean, they looked the part. They were big. They were tanned. They had all the gear and everything. It could cut really good promos. And so I think it was there were times where that place was packed overfilling with people and there was signs and there was, yeah, it was, they had whole theme nights where it was toga nights and it was, yeah, it was fun to be a part of because you're right there. The fans are right in the mix and there's no room for error. You can't, <laughs> you get called out pretty quick if something goes sideways. And uh, yeah, it was some of my favorite memories are in the lid. Yeah. It, it, like it's almost kind of weird to think of like the vibe around that for that time you know to have a bar sold out for weekly wrestling you know that there was that much interest that people are bringing signs that you can actually do theme nights like uh, independent wrestling right now i mean i think it's hotter than it's been in years but i still don't think it's at that level with that sort of commitment to it especially on a grassroots level for sure there was contingents of fans who were just as popular as some of the wrestlers for sure. And they go to war with each other across the bar and be part of the show. And um, a lot of those stuck with it. Like PCW had some downtimes, um, but when they transferred over to uh, doubles fun club a couple years later, a lot of those people came, mm-hmm. but at the lid, the stratosphere, all that, it was, as you mentioned earlier, pretty close to the university. So that crowd, I think it was something to do on a Thursday night, right? You were hitting that demographic where these guys were 20 to 28 years old, looking to get liquored up and just yell and scream and have fun. And (laughs) the girls would follow them and wonder what was going on. But it was, it was good times. Yeah. The one thing I'll remember is like the, that was, I'm not sure who was doing the, the booking for it, but they had their hand on the pulse because they were bringing in these guys from ROH. You'd get your, you know, Samoa Joe, your AJ yeah. Styles, whoever it was. And it's it, now thinking about it, and it's kind of crazy to think like, yeah, you know, Samoa Joe's wrestling at a bar for 
yeah. 200 people and he's one of the biggest stars now you know like at the history yeah. side, to, to me it just blows my mind sometimes it like i look back on it now because i in the past just kind of make a list of of who i've either worked against that you would consider as a name worker or been on a show with and a dressing room with and exactly what you said when andrew and mike started putting on their premier cup pay-per-view type shows at the bar mm-hmm. and bringing in AJ Styles and the amazing Red and Chris Sabin and all those guys mm-hmm. to work against local guys. And most of our local guys, Kenny and Mental and Ross Skills and Mike Angels and Robbie Royce, they could like keep up and hang with those big name stars. Most of them, like you said, were ROH at the time. It was it was neat to see and neat to be a part of um, watching really high quality wrestling um, and guys that I had effectively grown up in the business being really successful against guys that had made a name for themselves already out there in the independent world for sure mm-hmm. many of which are like maybe not household names now but a lot of those guys are well known for working for major promotions some of them still are too mm-hmm. right now we did a couple of shows did it move to dylan's no no it had moved to um i think it was called they changed Dylan's pub turned to the marquee event lounge, the same place anyways. Yeah. Um, and Andrew brought in um, El Generico and Kevin Steen, Kevin, Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens now, and we got to work against them and they were just a pleasure to work with. And it was, it was neat to um, now turn on your TV and see these guys being really successful. Christopher Daniels was another guy that was awesome to work against. And it was neat to see how he's, still going in AEW being I think he's probably mid fifties now, but he was, he was a very good worker. Yeah. Like, I mean, cause you, you still wrestled a few matches, I think, you know, 16, 17, like we had talked about, you yeah. know, when Kenny would come back. Um, when did you kind of officially pack things in, decide that you were, you were done? Uh, three different times. <laughs> <laughs> First time I think was in 2010, our son was born and it just seemed to like, we bought a house and we're moving on with the family life. My wife um, was halfway involved in the business too. She's there videotaping all the time Mm -hmm. for us. And so she knows all these guys. She knows some of them better than I know them. Like she hung out with Kenny and Mentolo and right. All these guys, because she lived in Winnipeg when I was in Brandon still. And so she's just one of the, one of the guys and we decided okay maybe that's enough i'm old i'm getting bigger <laughs> and slower and i uh was fortunate to use my gymnastics experience when i was a younger guy into the wrestling business and um i could still do kind of a flip i could still maybe do a nip up but it was getting embarrassing <laughs> and i thought okay and i was it's just getting old and broken down. I'd be playing with my son and as a toddler and swooping him above my head and then, oh, my back and have to take five months off of wrestling, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I, I, I couldn't let it get in the way of me being a teacher and a provider and all that kind of stuff. And then half a year later, Andrew reached out and said, we're going to run a big, a big our anniversary show. You think you can come back and do one more match? okay, you can always come back and do one more match. But then that turns into getting into a program with somebody and then you just back at it again. I re-retired 
for real. I think in 2017, I had changed or altered my gimmick to be the grizzled veteran Chad Tatum because mm -hmm. I really wasn't looking good in the same tights that I had been wearing as priceless Chad Tatum. <laughs> and so altered my outfit. I grew a grizzly gross beard and just became a heel. But the more stuff I was working and doing, it hit a chord with the crowd and they loved it. Mm -hmm. I was doing some stupid, inappropriate stuff at a bar show that you could get away with at the time. <laughs> and the fans were loving it. And so we were building towards where I figured would be a nice way to go out. Andrew offered me uh, Kenny Omega in a one-on-one. -on -one, and we did that. But it just wasn't, wasn't quite the finish, the end of the story that... Um, Andrew had pictured like the grizzled veteran character was still so over and so hot. And, um, he suggested one more little run and I agreed to it and it built to a storyline and a, we called it a fully loaded match, um, at Dylan's, it was against Andrew mm -hmm. and another guy of his choosing a, a guy named Alex Vanna, who I had worked quite a few times and trusted and everything. And it was just a, Anything goes weapons kind of match. I was the PCW, I think, Canadian champion at the time. And in a retirement match, you're supposed to go out on your back, do that properly, drop the title. But Andrew didn't want that. He wanted me to win and beat the two of them. And it turned into one of my favorite, most favorite matches. All my buddies from Brandon came in. My wife's parents, who had never been to a wrestling show ever, came to watch it. I had family there, and it was just... I was jumping off balconies through tables and hitting ridiculous, stupid spots on the outside with barbed wire bats and all that kind of stuff. And, and Andrew put me over. What a nice guy. He let me keep the title and all I, all I had to do was come in the next month. So you could just hand over the title. Okay. Is that all right? Which led to a few more matches against whenever Kenny would come in town, he, he was able to talk me out of retirement. So mm -hmm. 2018 was the very last one that we were able to do and it was on Kenny Omega's legit birthday and they started a storyline where they brought guys from Kenny's past so Mike and I were there and uh, he brought Tony Candela was out to the show Don Callis mm -hmm. made a surprise entrance Donnie DiCaprio was there some more and they turned it into an angle that had started at the Tokyo Dome New Japan between Don and Kenny that set up the Chris Jericho match that they had. And so being a part of that was pretty awesome. TSN was there filming for the documentary that they did on Kenny. Mm -hmm. um, and we had been interviewed a couple months before that. So that was a nice little ending. I don't know if you've ever seen footage or if you happen to be there or not, but I was there. That was the yeah. intro. That was the one intro the, that I mentioned. I recorded and put up on YouTube. It oh, was yeah. from that event. So okay, yeah. I, I remember being there. It was it was a packed house. Like it's, yeah. you would go to some of the shows there, and there'd be you know a solid fifty people there, and yeah. you know like it's just how it is sometimes. Yeah. That night it was standing room only. There. Yeah, they were turning away people, and that's an awesome 
event to be part of when it is standing room only and it's not people that are there on their phones and just having some beers and not just they're there to watch wrestling and be a part of the show and of course kenny had everything to do with that but we were able to have a decent little match that turned into a debacle with a bunch of cakes and pies <laughs> and it was just the ring was terrible i feel bad for the guys that had to legit come out after that and work I mean, they tried to clean the canvas off, but I'm sure it was a sticky, gross mess. Yeah, you can only do so much. Yeah, yeah. COVID hit, and that just allowed me to kind of step away. Mm -hmm. The business, everything shut down, as you know. And um, Andrew's been, he he was trying to get started, get started, and then the government would shut stuff down. Danny Duggan was able to run his promotion for a while. Um, And I've... I worked for him a few times around mm-hmm. here in Brandon in a, another small town called Surus that's not too far away. And he was kind enough to put me up against the names that he would bring in. And he even let me he put me over against some of them, let the hometown guy win. And that was a very nice thing for him to do. He messages every couple months, you coming out of retirement yet? You in it? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Danny. I appreciate it. But I'm old. I'm broken. I shouldn't be. So I, I love it that you're offering, but. No, no. I think if my last match is against a guy like Kenny Omega and the craziness that it was, that's fine. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do you do you still kind of pay attention to what's going on with wrestling, or is that kind of you're you're done with it? Yeah, uh, no. Um, on a local scene, I don't follow it too much because I know there isn't too much going on. I think Danny runs his shows. Um, the, uh, there's a group of super fans that used to run the Loose Ropes Wrestling podcast mm-hmm. i think they have their own promotion those guys so I'll, i have them on facebook and instagram and that kind of stuff so i see what they're doing but i'm not super invested in it because a lot of the guys that i spent my time in the business with are done now they're all old and broken like i am too and <laughs> um it's neat to see what some of the younger guys we had a big contingent of guys that would come in from uh, regina and saskatoon and that kind of stuff and they it was kind of fun to watch. They were 10 years younger than us and they were going through the same journey that Mike and Kenny and Mentolo and Bryce and I had gone through when we were just breaking in. Y'all, you're carpooling together. You're going eating before the show together. You're just you having that bond. It was neat to see where those guys have kind of ended up. I scroll through websites and find out what's going on in AEW or WWE. Just Again, I kind of want to see those guys um, that I've either been in a dressing room with or had worked against before to see what they're doing. And it's always cool to keep up on what Kenny's doing too. So Mm -hmm. new Japan is fun to watch if you can get it, but I'm not going to go out of my way to find it. But if I come across it, I'm for sure checking in on it. Yeah. Um, You had mentioned a few matches and I wanted Mm -hmm. to give you a chance. Any other really memorable matches that really stand out to you if you want to share? Uh, I'm going to throw back to um, early in CWF, one of my first main matches. In fact, um, I'm a high school teacher. So when some of my, say, grade nines find out from their older brothers or sisters or whoever, you used to be a wrestler? Yeah, maybe if we get time, I could show you a match or two. I always throw back to this old one. Um, Joe Aiello, remember he had his... um, show on the air but he also ran or half owned or ran a a tour company mike 
I, I can't remember what it was called, but um, they we, would do like the bus trips, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. So Mike, Bryce, myself, and two other guys that were connected to the business at that time jumped on a bus, and we actually went down to WrestleMania 17 in Houston, Texas, and that was a spectacle because it was. Our favorite match was the TLC that the Hardys, Edge and Christian and the Dudleys, that we were there live for it. And that's the biggest building I've ever been in my life down there. That many people. It was like having the population of Brandon and Portage La Prairie under one roof. And that was a sight to see. That got us super excited because a month later, we were coming back and assisted suicide. Bryce and I were having a tag team match against Mike and Darren Dalton because they had formed another version of Team Impact, because Robbie Royce, um, that was the night he had his match against Steve Carino and won mm-hmm. the NWA title in that big show at the Rendezvous. So we had a TLC. It was the third one we had done against each other, and it was crazy for local independent wrestling. In our eyes, it was one of my favorite matches, because we had a whole bunch of crazy spots. Unfortunately, Mike legit broke his leg. <laughs> Yeah, and it wasn't even, like, of all the tables and ladder spots and chair, all the stuff that we did, we were just literally throwing him out of the ring so I could climb up the ladder, mm-hmm. right? Bryce threw him out of the ring, and he flipped over the top and caught his hip in an awkward way that the his momentum slammed his leg against the ground and the side of the ring, and it snapped his tibia and fibula, lower leg bones, and he was lying there in pain. We thought he was just selling. He was overselling. <laughs> but he had legit broke his leg. We were supposed to do a run-in later and chase him and Dalton off of the – they were going to beat up Steve Carino or something. And we're yelling at him in the back, you got to go out. You got to go out. <laughs> My leg's broken. <laughs> Suck it up and rub some dirt on it and get out there and do your running because we got to do our running. And, yeah, so – that was probably for a long time one of my most favorite matches. I'm gonna skip ahead, 2016. Uh, again, it was kind of a Mike Angels had already retired a couple months before, but as as you do, you get called back for one more match, mm-hmm. and so my surprise tag team partner um, was Mike, and he brought back a returning Nate Hardy. Mm-hmm. Us three took on Kenny, who was the New Japan, their version of the Intercontinental Champion at the time. And he even brought his belt with him. He was the cleaner that time. Kenny um, and Stevens, and they had, uh, what did they call him? You mentioned him earlier, under Uh, the mask. uh, uh, General Xiaoping. Yes, yes. And Kenny sold it like, I got a friend from Japan. Mm -hmm. And everybody thought it was Kota Ibushi. And it was Donnie DiCaprio under a mask <laughs> doing every stereotypical Asian thing you could do. But that, and Kenny off the fly, just let's have a 2020 Tokyo Olympic death match. <laughs> okay, I guess. But we had got Lego involved, not thumbtacks, but bags mm-hmm. of Legos. I think there was marshmallows involved and it was just... All my buddies were there. The bar was just right. Everyone had enough to drink by that point in the mm-hmm. night. And it was just the crowd was popping. And that's probably another one of my highlights because we had such a good time. 
Kenny powerbombed the crap out of me onto the Legos and hit a big finish. It was, yeah, it was wonderful. It was crazy. And if that had been my last match, that would have been fine too, because that was a, a very popular memory. And if you have time, can I say one more? Yeah, but yeah, okay, oh, before sorry. you do that, I yeah. have to mention, oh, because yeah. like when I was going through my head thinking, I was like, I swear that there was Lego involved in that yep. match. And then I'm like, <laughs> no, there couldn't have been. So like, at least you reaffirm that I'm not completely out to lunch with it. Yeah, I had actually Kenny and I in 2013, like a decade ago, it was one of those nights where he was coming in and working three different times because he, he was in Japan and he'd come back home for a couple months. I think he was just with DDT, so he wasn't like super Kenny over there yet. Um, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, he wanted to work me in the opening and then he had a tag later on and then he was going to work. I think Scorpio was a champion or something. So he legit was working three different times. And it was one of those nights where at the opening um, match, there was only 50 people in the bar because PCW, as much as I love it, was notorious for the doors open at 8. Show starts at 8.30. In reality, the show didn't start till 10. Mm-hmm. And that was terrible for the fans. And we always bugged Andrew. It wasn't always Andrew's fault at all. Like all the wrestlers had to get there. They had to learn what they were doing and who yeah. they were working, all that kind of stuff. But the show didn't really get started. And we were trying to reset the clock on that as performers. And Andrew wanted it to. Okay, the show starts at 8, guys. If there's five people in here, we're starting at 8. And there was 50 and Kenny and I got to do that. But I somehow convinced Kenny to work Legos into a a match in front of 50 people. And we thought it was hilarious. And I uh, kept it in my head because I thought it was funny. Rather, like everyone expects a bag of thumbtacks, but you don't see Legos that often. And I've done both. And no word of a lie, Legos are worse. I believe it. Yeah, it wasn't fun. Like in the moment, you get a big power bomb or slam or whatever, and, and it's all good. The crowd pops and it's all fun. And then you go back, and an hour later, and you take a picture of your back, and it's all shredded and cut to crap. And yeah, <laughs> so but this 2016 match was a special one, and so I suggested we bring Lego back. And he's like, "Let's do it. Get mm-hmm. as much Lego as you can. I'll I'll give you two hundred dollars. Go buy all the Lego you want." I was like, "Okay." I was just going to raid my kid's closet or something, but no, <laughs> we're buying out knockoff Lego at all the stores that we could find and pillowcases bringing it in. Yeah, it was ridiculous and marshmallows. And yeah, it was a terrible, horrible mess, And but it was so fun. So, mm-hmm. yeah. What was the other one you have for me? Uh, I was going to throw to a show that Danny Duggan put on here in Brandon. One of the bars here is called Houston's Nightclub. And mm-hmm. it's probably my favorite venue for working a show in I've got to work there a couple times. Um, and I touted it to everyone that I knew all the guys on my hockey and soccer team, all the people that I worked with family, friends. So I, we packed the house and they were, by the time I, I got to be in the main event, I was working against Silas young. And um, again, daddy put me over and that was real nice of him and Silas to do for me in front of my hometown crowd. And they had never really been to like a handful of my buddies had come out, but no one at work, they'd heard about this kind of stuff. And they, mm-hmm. so to see them half liquored up, enjoying themselves. And then 
everyone has that moment like, hey, I know that guy. That guy <laughs> in the ring, I know him. <laughs> and I'm not a tiny dude at this point. And I wasn't at that point anymore, but I could still do some flippy stuff. And no one expects the 40-year-old fat guy to do a backflip off the top rope. And I was doing that kind of stuff. And so it was just blowing their mind. And then when I won, the place went nuts. My dad was there. My mom couldn't make it, but my dad was there. And he hadn't come, he'd only come to one other show early on. And um, I looked out in the crowd and he's there next to my sister, just smiling. And I got to cut a promo at the end and I was the grizzled veteran at that point and mm-hmm. uh, the grizzled grap is here everybody and <laughs> shouted him out and he got to it was yeah, something that I'm glad I have on tape and that I'll never forget either too so that was another very fun moment for me I'm thankful to have had it so that's awesome I mean to be able to share something like that I think it really just caps things off and I think that's really great yeah, it was fun at work the next day, for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, normally, I'd ask for upcoming shows or social yep. media, but I know you don't have any upcoming shows. But if you have anything you would like to plug, I mean, here's a chance now. I would just put over the guys that helped me along the way that are still running shows. Andrew Shellcross, I'm not sure if he's going to reopen the doors of PCW. He's kind of maybe I've had conversations with him about maybe just stepping away. It's fine. He used to mm-hmm. run himself ragged, but if he ever does, and Andrew, if you're ever watching or listening to this, good luck to you. Danny Duggan's always been really nice to me and I wish him well. He's, there's only two or three guys that I know and he's one of them that is doing the grind and his mm-hmm. real life is being a professional wrestler, his mm-hmm. wife and kids, and that kind of stuff. But he's on the road all across Canada doing his thing, putting on shows and I wish him well too so if they've got a show go check that out too so chad thank you so much for doing this i truly appreciate it thank you for letting me ramble on for more than an hour i'm sorry if i did but when we talked or online i said i was going to do this so i'm sorry (laughs) no i said it was quite all right so thank you very much Thank you to Chad and thank you for checking out the podcast. I say it every time. I will always say it. I truly appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen to me talk about wrestling. Uh, if it's your first time listening, you can find me up on all social media at Grainmaker Wrestling Podcast. Email GrainmakerPodcast at gmail.com. Up on all podcast streaming platforms. And you can catch me every Saturday up on Love Wrestling's YouTube doing four exposure with my good friend Pluggo as we take a look at the world of independent wrestling. So thanks again for checking out the podcast. We'll talk soon.